Hello everyone and welcome to the second season of the History of Modern Greece, where we cover the subject of the fall of Constantinople to the modern day. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George. Hi, my name's George. And our music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is episode 57, The Holy Roman Empire. After covering the history of the Vikings for five episodes in a row, we feel the podcast has slightly gone off track. Just know that it was very important to explain who the Vikings were and what they got up to because they had such a dramatic effect on Middle Greece or the Byzantine Empire as it's commonly known. Actually, no one calls it Middle Greece, but it is an accurate description. Alas... If we are feeling the show has gotten a little off track, then we can only assume the audience must feel the same way. Luckily, we will be getting right back into the narrative of modern Greece after two more origin stories. We now have to talk about another major player in Europe that will not only have serious consequences for the region, but will also come to challenge the very legitimacy of the Greeks as the rightful successors to the Roman Empire. We are talking, of course, of the Holy Roman Empire. Or the German Roman Empire. Again, no one actually calls it that, but it is fitting. Since everyone wants to be the rightful successor to the Roman Empire, we have to find a way to differentiate these people. So here we go. The Holy Roman Empire origin story. We actually started the story at the end of Season 1, when we discussed the Franks and Charlemagne. He was the first Western emperor since 476 CE and controlled modern-day France, Germany, Switzerland, and northern Italy. This was the beginning of the reunification of the Western Roman Empire, and maybe eventually the entire Roman Empire, but it was not meant to be. For the Franks have a terrible flaw that prevented them from ever succeeding in the long run. Their inheritance system was garbage. When a king died, he split the empire up amongst his children until they eventually went to war. This happened with Clovis, it happened with Clothair, and it happened to Charlemagne. Except Charlemagne only had one son. So the transfer of power wasn't violent. Charlemagne's only son, Louis the Pious, inherited the throne and the entire Carolingian Empire. Long story short, Louis's children rebelled against him almost immediately, and his entire reign was consumed by civil war, yet he managed to hold on to power. But this is where everything gets crazy. In a nutshell, this is the conflict that will tear the empire apart giving birth to both Germany and France, but also the concept of Italy. It's so easy to say that one child got West Francia, and that became France, and another son got Middle Francia, which became Italy, and the third son got East Francia, and that became Germany, or the Holy Roman Empire. But it's more complicated than that. Why is the monarch of France called king? Why was a monarch in Germany called emperor? If the kings of France were descended from Charlemagne, couldn't they call themselves the Holy Roman Empire as well? 
Why is it called the Holy Roman Empire? It was West Francia that fully adopted the language of the Romans, while East Francia continued speaking German. The only way to answer this question without dragging the origin story on forever is to explain everything in the form of a game. The game is called Follow the Crown. When Charlemagne became Emperor of the Romans, he was crowned by the Pope. Now this set a precedent. First, the Pope is the one to crown the Emperor. And second, he who wears the crown holds the title of Emperor. But as we know from before, the Franks started this game with rules of their own, which is that the king shall divide his empire up amongst his sons. Now the game really began when Charlemagne died in 814. He left the crown and his empire to his only son, Louis the Pious. Louis had three sons, and all of them were power-hungry. It almost seems as though they wanted their father to die so they could take what was rightfully theirs. While Louis wore the crown, he declared his eldest son, Lothar, as his successor, who would inherit the crown and become emperor. While his younger son, Pepin, was made Duke of Aquitaine in southwestern France, Louis was made Duke of Bavaria. This was all done in the name of stability, in hopes that his sons wouldn't fight each other if they knew exactly what their roles were. His eldest son was given the title of emperor, while the other two sons were made kings of large regions within the empire. Everyone should have been happy. The first rift came well before Louis the Pious died. The two younger sons probably thought they got the short end of the deal as they were mere kings of provinces within the empire, while Lothair, the oldest, got the whole empire and was ruler over all. But for now, they accepted what their father was offering them. After all, they could always go to war with their brothers once their father was dead and take their land from them. But something was about to upset the apple cart. When Charlemagne left his empire to his only son, Louis the Pious, what really happened was he excluded his first son, Pepin, because he was a bastard. The Roman Catholic Church didn't recognize bastards, and therefore Charlemagne couldn't leave his empire to his firstborn son. It had to go to his legitimate son, Louis the Pious. But Charlemagne didn't cast his bastard son away. He granted him the kingdom of Italy. And when Pepin of Italy died, he left his kingdom to his son, Bernard. As we stand, Louis the Pious is still emperor of the empire. His eldest son is set to inherit the whole realm of Francia with two brothers set up as kings of Bavaria and Aquitaine, and a cousin as king of Italy. Bernard did not like the idea of his cousin become the emperor, and plotted against his emperor. He wanted to either break free and become independent, or go to war. However, his plans were figured out, and he was quickly arrested. Because the Carolingians wanted to act like the true successor of the Roman Empire, they punished Bernard the same way the Byzantines punished royal dissidents. They pinned him down, took a red-hot poker, and burnt his eyes out. Now the Franks were new to this blinding treatment, and they stuck the red-hot pokers a little too far into his eyes, and ended up cooking part of his brain. 
Needless to say, Bernard dies from his punishment. The killing of Bernard, a Carolingian nobleman, gave Louis a bad reputation. The church frowned on his actions, and the emperor was forced to repent for his sins. In a climate such as Francia, taking penance was a sign of weakness. The icing on the cake came when Louis the Pious had a fourth son with a second wife, and cut him into the inheritance of the empire. His sons were already unhappy with their inheritance, and the fact that Louis was trying to squeeze a son in from another mother angered his first three sons. They revolted against him and deposed the emperor in 832 CE. Luckily for Louis the Pious, he managed to regain control of his empire, but the cracks were starting to form. It is at this time that the Vikings began raiding into the empire, furthering the chaos in Francia. Everything seemed to be falling apart. In 838 CE, Pepi, son of Louis the Pious, died which left the province of Aquitaine free to give to his fourth son, Charles the Bald. Now, Charles was the son of Louis' second marriage, who everyone made a big stink about earlier in the decade. Now comes the first move of the imperial crown. Pay attention, and remember, it's a game. In 840 CE, Louis the Pious son of Charlemagne, died. The crown passed on to his eldest son, Lothar, making him the emperor of the Carolingian Empire. As was originally planned, Lothar took the center and bulk of the empire, while his younger brother, Louis the German, took the province of Bavaria as king, and Charles the Bald took the province of Aquitaine. Hopefully we haven't lost you yet. The imperial crown is now with Lothair, while two brothers are kings of large provinces in the empire. According to the original agreement laid out by their father, this should make everyone happy and keep the empire stable. But this is Francia, and the brothers were not happy. Ultimately, it was Emperor Lothar who made the first move. He didn't like the fact that his younger brothers were kings and made a move to take absolute power over the empire. Lothair might have had a larger part of the empire and could easily take out his brothers one at a time. But his brothers weren't going to go down without a fight and join forces to wage war against their older brother. This started a bloody war that only ended with a treaty that saw the entire empire broken up more evenly. Okay. In 843... The brothers signed the Treaty of Verdun, which saw the empire broken up more evenly. Charles the Bald was assigned all of western Francia. Louis the German received eastern Francia. And Lothair kept the middle of Francia, which stretched from the North Sea all the way down to Italy. It is also important to note that Lothair is still the emperor, wearing the crown of Charlemagne. The only loser here was Lothair because he got greedy, he lost a large chunk of his empire, while Charles the Bald went from owning Aquitaine to all of France, and Louis the German went from owning Bavaria to all of Germany. 
The Treaty of Verdun is a point in history that gave birth to the idea of France and Germany. Isn't that something? There's, that's a lot of piece of history right there. Lothair might have been emperor, but his reign was filled with violence from all sides. Not only did he have to rule over a long stretch of land between his hostile brothers, but his subjects were made up of many different tribes that all want to rebel. In the south, his kingdom faced constant raids from the Arabs, and in the north, he faced constant raids from the Vikings. In 846, the Arabs sacked St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. Lothar was having a rough go at ruling the empire, and couldn't keep moving his armies from north to south and west to east, so he assigned the defense of Italy to his firstborn son Louis. He did such a good job at repelling the Arabs from Rome that he actually conquered new lands in the southern peninsula, adding to the empire. Lothair was so impressed with his firstborn son that he crowned him as co-emperor and king of Italy. Now comes the second move of the crown. Pay attention. In 855 CE, Lothair the emperor of Middle Francia died. And because these are Franks, they did the same thing that every Frankish king does. He broke Middle Francia up into three parts and gave them to each of his sons. His firstborn, Louis II, who was already co-emperor and king of Italy, kept Italy. The other two sons split the northern half of the empire in two with Lothar II taking the north and Charles taking the south. So let's step back and look at the playing board. Francia is broken up into three parts, West Francia, Middle Francia, and East Francia. But now, Middle Francia was broken up into three parts as well, with Middle Top, Middle Middle, and Middle Bottom, and the Imperial Crown was situated in Italy, or the bottom part of Middle Francia. Did I mention this was complicated? <laughs> A quick geographic note is needed here. Louis II, king of Italy and emperor, was protected by the Alps, so it was unlikely he was going to be attacked. Unfortunately for the other two brothers who ruled Middle Middle Francia and Upper Middle Francia, they were too weak and too small, and wedged right in between Charles the Bald of West Francia and Louis the German of East Francia. It was only a matter of time before one of the small territories of Middle Francia was gobbled up. And to give you a hint of who went first, Charles of Provence, or Middle Middle Francia, was only ten years old. He had internal conflicts of his own, as he was too young to rule on his own, and eventually died. His kingdom was quickly absorbed by his two brothers, most of which went to the emperor and king of Italy, Louis II. So now we have West Francia, Upper Middle Francia, Lower Middle Francia, and East Francia, with Lower Middle Francia holding the imperial crown. This brings us to the second fracture in the realm, Lothar II of Upper Middle Francia was childless. 
and that is his wife couldn't bear him any children. Luckily for him, he was sleeping with another woman who bore him several children. But there was another rule in the game of the crown that couldn't be broken. And that was the rule of the Catholic Church. No bastard was deemed legitimate. And so Lothar fought hard to divorce his wife and marry his mistress so his bastard children would be recognized and could inherit his kingdom. To make matters harder for Lothar II, his brother and uncles were stopping the Pope from granting Lothar's request, knowing that his land would soon be free to swallow up. In 869, Lothair received word that the Pope had granted his consent to divorce his wife and marry his mistress. So he packed up his things and began the long journey across the Alps to visit the Pope in Rome. Unfortunately for Lothair, he caught a fever and died before anything could happen. This left Upper Middle Francia up for grabs, and his uncles in East Francia and West Francia swallowed up Upper Middle Francia. So now the board is set. West Francia is all of modern-day France, ruled by Charles the Bald. East Francia was now all of Germany and ruled by Louis the German. And what remained of Middle Francia was just Italy and Switzerland, ruled by Louis II. Even though Louis' kingdom was the smallest out of all his brothers, he was protected by the Alps and held on to the crown and imperial title. But being on the Italian peninsula meant he had to spend all of his time at constant war with the Arabs. Knowing that there was no chance of taking any land north of the Alps, Louis II focused his efforts on reconquering southern Italy and even expelled the Arabs from Benevento in the southern peninsula. This is where the third move of the crown takes place. Pay attention. In 875 CE, Louis II, emperor and king of Italy, died. Almost as soon as he died, Charles the Bald of West Francia, or France, swooped in and conquered the kingdom of Italy, taking Middle Francia. At this point, West Francia is the largest of the Carolingian Empire, and when he entered Italy, he had the complete support of the Pope. But the nobles in Italy were loyal to Louis II, who wanted the kingdom to go to Carloman of Bavaria. So although Charles the Bald was the first to invade Italy, he wasn't able to hold on to it, and was eventually forced out by his nephew, Carloman of Bavaria, from eastern Francia. Just when things couldn't get any more dicier, in 876 CE, Louis the German of East Francia died. And following the long tradition of Franks, East Germany was then divided up and split amongst his three sons. Louis the Young took northern East Francia, Charles the Fat took central East Francia, and Carloman took Bavaria of eastern Francia. This was the perfect scenario for Charles the Bald. His brothers were all dead, and the heirs to their kingdoms were weakened and divided and waiting to be gobbled up. So Charles the Bald of West Francia, or France, prepared to invade and take over the entire Carolingian Empire. 
The following year, in 877 CE, just as he was about to embark on his campaign, Charles the Bald died. So now all three sons of Louis the Pious are dead. But where is the imperial crown? Last we saw, it was in Italy. When Carloman of Bavaria kicked his uncle out of Italy, he took the crown and was crowned emperor by the Pope. Just to repaint the picture, there are only two Francias now. West Francia, which was controlled by Charles the Bald's only son, Louis the Stammerer. While East Francia was broken up into three parts, with Louis the Young in northern East Francia, Charles the Fat in Middle East Francia, and Carloman of Bavaria controlling Southern East Francia and Italy, and also holding on to the imperial crown. This is where the crown moves for the fourth time. Carloman was weak and near death. So he bequeathed the imperial crown and title to his brother, Charles the Fat of Middle East Francia. So the French side was united, while the German side was split in two, with the imperial crown in the bottom half, with Charles the Fat as emperor. It seems like a never-ending game. The funny thing is, the crown always seems to stay in Italy, which is the smallest territory in the whole empire but it is also right next to the Pope. On April 10th, 879, Louis the Stammerer of West Francia died at the age of 32, which meant his two sons would divide up the kingdom. Carloman II took southern France, while Louis III took northern France. Now the Carolingian Empire was divided up into four quadrants, Just in case you are wondering, the imperial crown and title are in the bottom right corner with Charles the Fat. Later that year, a new precedent was set, one that further fractured the crumbling empire. A nobleman, unrelated to the Carolingians, declared independence in Provence, along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. This was a very dangerous precedent because it meant any nobleman could claim the title of king. Everything was falling apart, and on paper, it looked like the empire would never unify again. And just so you fully grasp the situation, this entire conflict had consumed Europe for decades. No matter how strong one member of the family got, they eventually died and had to break up their kingdoms. This happened with the Merovingian kingdoms, which formed under King Clovis. It may have been united at first, but it quickly dissolved, and what ended up was 50 or more kings ruling over tiny plots of land, looking to betray their next-door neighbors. And it looked like the same thing was about to happen to the Carolingians. In 880 CE, a treaty was signed by all the cousins to come together and kick out the usurper from Provence who wasn't even related to them. But even that didn't last. No one could work with each other. No one trusted each other. And also they were poor and weakened from decades of fighting. And did you forget? This is the middle of the Viking Age. With all these wars and betrayals, 
The Vikings were still roaming up and down the rivers, pillaging every village they came across. This was truly the Dark Ages. And this is where things went from bad to worse. In 882 CE, Louis the Young of Upper Eastern Francia died without an heir. His lands were up for grabs. It was just a matter of who would get there first. Since Louis III of Upper Western Francia was the closest, you'd think he'd get there first. But, surprise, surprise, he also died that year. And it just so happened that he didn't have any heirs either. It was now up to Carloman of Lower West Francia and Charles the Fat of Lower East Francia to race to take the empire for themselves. In 884 CE, Carloman of Lower West Francia also died. And just like that, there was only one Carolingian king left, Charles the Fat, from the lower right corner of the empire, the one who wore the imperial crown, moved in and took control of the entire Carolingian empire for the first time since Louis the Pious. The entire empire was ruled by a single monarch, who also was emperor. Just like that. All the chaos, all the fighting, it was over. Charles the Fat won the game of the crown. There was still that pesky usurper down in Provence who claimed the title of king without a drop of Carolingian blood. But that was a tiny problem that could be dealt with swiftly. This is the same emperor who paid the Normans to lift the siege of Paris in 885. He had the entire empire for himself, but that also meant he had all of its problems to deal with on his own. And most of his resources were squandered, fighting endless wars against his cousins. It was just too much for one man to handle. He was unpopular, broke, and to make matters worse, he was very ill. It didn't take long for someone to overthrow him. In 887, Charles of Fat was deposed, and a few weeks later he died. At this point, there were only two Carolingians left who could lay claim to the empire. Charles the Simple in the West, who was still a very young man, and Arnulf of Carinthia, who was a bastard. This marks the end of the Carolingian Empire. Never again would it ever be united. I mean, you could argue Napoleon had control over the entire empire at one point, but that was a thousand years later. You could also say that East Francia briefly held on to the entire Carolingian Empire when Hitler conquered Europe, but that only lasted a few years before everyone put a stop to that. Fun fact, when Napoleon took over Europe, he used a replica of the imperial crown worn by Charlemagne. So this covers the fall of the Carolingian Empire. But how does this lead to the Holy Roman Empire? Well, Arnulf of Carinthia claimed himself king of East Francia and reigned until 899 CE. But he wasn't a legitimate Carolingian, and when he died, his son, Louis the Child, took over his place. But at this time, the empire was fractured, 
and noblemen started popping up and claiming themselves to be kings of their own territories. This was the beginning of the fracturing that almost spiraled out of control. The dukes had basically had enough of all this crazy nonsense. If they let dynasties continue fighting for control, the war would never end, and eventually everything would collapse. So the dukes got together and decided that they needed some say into who was going to be their next ruler. No longer would it be a simple matter of inheritance. That way had failed them for the last time. Because not only did they have internal conflicts to deal with, but they had steppe tribes on the eastern frontier. If they didn't get their shit together soon, they were going to fall to the horde, just as the Germans had fallen to Attila the Hun 400 years before. The powerful dukes got together, and in a meeting, they voted amongst themselves who should be the rightful ruler of the empire. This was going to be a decision based on competence and merit, not nepotism. They elected the Duke of Saxony to be their next ruler. In the year 911 CE, the dukes elected Conrad of Franconia to be the first elected ruler of East Francia. And he governed over East Francia until he died in 918. He spent most of his reign fighting off the Magyars in the east, as well as fighting against those within the empire who refused to recognize his authority. Needless to say, Conrad didn't have an easy go of it. And in 918 he was deposed. But the precedent was set. The next king would be elected by the dukes. But it didn't help that every duke saw themselves as the rightful ruler. And all over the empire, dukes rose up and claimed independence. Specifically in France and Italy. But in East Francia, they had the threat of the Magyars to unite them. The Magyars were horse warriors from the steppe. They raided the land and burnt entire settlements, churches, and castles to the ground. They spared no one, killing the elderly, women, and children. They were deemed enemies of all mankind and Christianity. In 919, the Dukes of East Francia elected Henry of Saxony to be the next king. He quickly crushed the rebellions in his neighboring provinces and united the eastern Franks under a new dynasty. What's truly fascinating about Henry is he is the first non-Frankish king of eastern Francia giving breath into the idea of the Kingdom of Germany. It is here that we see Germany really take form. In 924, Henry captured one of the Magyar princes and managed to settle a ten-year peace for East Francia. A peace was greatly needed to consolidate power and control over the kingdom. He waged war against the Danes in the north and the Slavs in the east, widening his borders, but also strengthening his grip on the land. With every victory, he became more popular with the nobles and his power grew stronger. Henry broke from Frankish tradition in two major ways. Maybe it was because he was a Saxon, or maybe it was because he saw just how flawed the Carolingian system was. First, he saw himself as first among equals in the kingdom. He was the Duke of Saxony, and all the other dukes kept their power and control over their land. But Henry was the first amongst all the dukes. So even though he was in charge 
and at the top, he never took power away from the other dukes. Second, he refused to break up his land amongst his sons. He left his position to his eldest son, and he alone. This way the kingdom wouldn't erupt into chaos on his death. At this time, you might be asking yourself, where is the crown? Who is emperor? Well, the crown is where we left it, in Italy. And there is no emperor at this time. But that was about to change. Henry of Saxony, king of East Francia, gathered his men and prepared for the journey south, where the Pope would crown him emperor, and his consolidation of power would be complete. Except he fell gravely ill on his way south, and on July 2nd, 936 CE, Henry of Saxony died. He was so close to becoming emperor, and now the entire empire was at risk of falling back into chaos. Henry's son Otto was granted the Duchy of Saxony. East Francia was without an emperor, and they were in the middle of a Magyar invasion. The dukes gathered at the old capital of Charlemagne in the city of Aachen. There was going to be another election to see who would take up the position of king. Otto was the son of the last king and the rightful heir, but he still needed to go through the election process. So he traveled to Aachen for the election, and so did many others. Not only did all the dukes travel to the capital, but peasants from all over the land came to see who their new king was going to be. On August 8th, 936 CE, the ceremony was held in Aachen Royal Residency, Otto sat on a decorated chair while all the dukes came up to him in front of a large crowd and one by one they professed their support and loyalty to Otto. Once all of the dukes swore their allegiance in public, the bishop asked all of the people present if they accepted the results of this election. As the commoners raised their right hands into the air, the election was codified and Otto I was crowned King of East Francia and the German kingdoms. This marked the beginning of an almost thousand-year tradition for Germans, and during his coronation, the Roman Catholic Archbishop anointed Otto as God's representative on earth. He was crowned King and heir to Charlemagne, but he was not the Emperor. After receiving the king's crown, he walked up the stairs to the throne of Charlemagne and sat down, signaling to everyone in the court that he was not satisfied being king of the Germans. He wanted to be emperor of all of Christendom. Now that Otto was king, he began his tour of the realm. This is a tradition that goes back to Charlemagne. The throne was not the representation of power like the Byzantine Empire. His authority came from his crown, and his throne was the back of his horse. He spent half of the year traveling to all corners of his kingdom, meeting with local lords and observing the status of each Francia. Otto used his power and influence to appoint those loyal to him as dukes and structured the Catholic Church so the bishops would be loyal to Otto and not some other duke. He slowly and carefully consolidated power within East Francia. Otto was a Saxon. We already knew that. 
and his first wife was also a Saxon, and her name was Edith. But Edith did not come from Saxony. She was from Wessex in modern-day England and was the daughter of King Edward and granddaughter to King Alfred the Great. She bore Otto a son named Leodolf, and it was expected that he would be the rightful heir to Otto the Great. Leodolf was a very successful prince and helped expand the territory of Otto the Great, but he ended up getting a little too comfortable with power and made a move against one of Otto's allies, which soiled the relationship between Otto and his son, Leodolf. And then his mother died, and Otto took a new wife, and she bore him a son. To make matters worse for Leodolf, Otto proclaimed his new son would inherit the throne and cast his firstborn son away from the line of succession. In 953 CE, the Magyars launched a full invasion of East Francia, sending the kingdom into chaos. The horde of horse archers rampaged through the kingdom, burning entire villages to the ground, spreading through the kingdom like wildfire, completely depopulating provinces as they massacred everyone they came across. The Magyar invasion cut right through the kingdom, spreading death and destruction. Luck had it, though, that the duchy controlled by Leodolf was spared this carnage. And when his father called for his aid, Leodolf decided to sit this one out. He was still bitter with his father's decision to cut him out of the line of succession. And he sat back, watching the Magyars burn his father's kingdom to the ground. When the Magyars finally made it to Leodolf's duchy, he paid them off with gold and silver, but went one step further and met with their leader. He expressed his displeasure with his father and offered to lead them right to his father's personal treasure trove. This was an act of betrayal, one that did not go unnoticed. Otto brought his army to Leodolf and confronted his son. He asked him why he was betraying him, and in a physical confrontation, either a sword fight or a brawl or just an angry shouting match, Otto held his son at sword point and told him to bow before his father. But Leodolf managed to escape, and this started a war between Otto and his firstborn son. Otto chased his son to the nearest city where Leodolf sought refuge. An army sieged the city for months, waiting for Leodolf to surrender, and when the gates finally opened and soldiers nearly burnt the city to the ground, there was no sign of Leodolf. Otto's rebellious son had escaped him once again. After a year on the run, it almost seemed impossible that Otto would find his traitor's son. But one day, while in a camp, in the middle of the forest, a strange man in tattered rags approached the camp. The dukes with Otto circled around the poorly dressed warrior, and it became apparent that this lone vagabond was actually the son of Otto. Leodolf had been on the run for so long that he couldn't show his face in any village and roam the countryside poor and alone. He walked up to the camp and was immediately surrounded by the dukes of the camp. Their swords were drawn. Leodolf knelt before the king and begged him for forgiveness. 
Otto walked past his men. As they parted his swords and stood before his son, he reached out to his son, and to the surprise of many, pulled his son to his feet and embraced him, forgiving Leodolf. On that day, Leodolf apologized and swore loyalty to his father. Leodolf forfeited his right to Otto's throne, and his father gave his son a sword and welcomed him back into his home. Otto the Great, now united with his son and all of the German tribes, focused all of his wrath and vengeance on the invading Magyars. Word made it to Otto that a town in Osberg was under siege from the Magyars, and the inhabitants refused to surrender. The call was put out to all the dukes, and the German soldiers from all corners of the kingdom descended upon the Magyars. When Otto and his army arrived at the city walls, he had all of the German tribes rallied behind his banner. Standing on his hill, with every German tribe united behind him, Otto the Great gave a speech to his men, telling them that they will no longer stand by as the Magyars burned their churches and killed their people. They would speak with the Magyars, not with their tongues, but with the sharp ends of their swords. He told his men to stay strong and keep formation, for this was a battle that demanded they work together as a single unit and not let the Magyars break them apart. As the Magyars galloped across the open field, screaming and shouting, Otto stood at the front and commanded his army. He told them to hold the line and let them come. God will protect us. As the horde of riders neared, they fired their arrows, and these arrows flew through the skies in clusters and were meant to break apart the enemy. But the German line held. Otto's army held their shields up, and most of the arrows were blocked with iron shields and metal plating. Sure, many arrows met their target, and German soldiers and horses dropped dead and wounded. But the line held strong. As the Magyars continued their charge, Otto's men and horses were dressed with a new type of armor that protected them, something called chainmail, which prevented arrows from puncturing the flesh of the soldiers and horses. As the Magyars continued their charge and came very close to the German line, they noticed something chilling. The enemy wasn't breaking and running. They were standing strong, with their lances at the ready. Up until this moment, the Magyars relied on the same hit-and-run tactic that got them this far. To put this into perspective, imagine a man who won every fight he ever got into by screaming and running at his opponent, frightening them into running, and then beating the crap out of them as they fled. That man would get used to his opponents running at every encounter. But what if one day the opponent doesn't run? What if they stood up and fought instead? There would be a moment of realization in that man's eyes as he realized his enemy wasn't turning and running. That they were ready to fight. So would this man turn and run? Or would he stand and fight? He wouldn't even know what to do as the situation had never come up before. The German riders attacked. Their spears were raised and they charged into battle. An entire wall of lances charged the Magyars. The German wall crashed into the Magyars, instantly skewering every man on the front line. 
The chaos spread throughout the lines, and the weaker Magyars turned and fled at the sight of their men dying, while the braver ones stood and fought. But the Magyars were horse archers. They didn't have spears or lances, and they were not wearing armor. The Germans encircled the Magyars and slowly speared them to death. One by one, not a single Magyar was spared. And just like that, a united German army, led by a single German king, defeated the heathen army of Magyars. This victory gave Otto an uncontested authority over the German people. He was truly chosen by God to be their leader. His contemporaries dubbed him the great defender of the fatherland. But there was still one thing lacking in his career. Otto the Great might have been a king and defender of East Francia, but what he lacked lay beyond the wall that was the Alps in the Kingdom of Italy. In 961, Otto the Great crossed the Alps with an army of a thousand warriors. The Pope had called for his aid, as the current king of Italy was giving him trouble, and Otto seized on the opportunity, riding to the Pope's defense. Otto dispatched the Italian king and continued his march to the Papal States. He rode to Rome, using the same roads traveled on by the former Caesars of the great Roman Empire. And when he gazed upon the city of Rome with his own eyes, he knew he would not leave it as a king. On February 2nd, 962 CE, Otto the Great entered the Basilica, the same Basilica that Charlemagne had entered 150 years before. As the Pope lay the crown above Otto's head, he swore an oath to protect the Holy Roman Church against all of its offenders. Pope John II placed the crown upon Otto's head and pronounced him Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. Fun fact, you can still see this crown on display in Vienna. It's not a little crown, but a golden crown encrusted with jewels and precious stones. Every Holy Roman Emperor wore this crown until 1806. The Saxon ruler, Otto, was now king of the Germans, king of Italy, and emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. He spent ten years in Italy consolidating power and putting down Italian princes who stood up against him. He also fought against the Arabs from the south and the Byzantines from the east. Now, he might have been able to kick the Arabs out of Italy, but the Byzantines were the rightful inheritors of the Roman Empire and directly contested his claim as emperor. Because there was no way at all for him to cross over and take the throne from the Greeks, he sought to ally himself with the Byzantines and proposed a marriage alliance between the German Romans and the Greek Romans. In April 972 CE, the niece of Byzantine Emperor John Tsimiskis was sent to Rome, where she married Otto II. Even though this was a great mark in history, where the emperor in the west married the niece of the emperor in the east, the truth that John Tsimiskis was a usurper made it to the German imperial court. At first, they thought to turn the Greek woman away, but in the name of peace and unity, the marriage went through. Theophano of Byzantium married Otto II, 
of the Holy Roman Empire. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the History of Modern Greece. Stay safe and stay awesome.